You're tuned in to Positively Terrible. I'm producer Dan, and each week my buddy Scott and I discuss surviving and thriving after trauma. It's a journey that started when Scott, his wife's fiance, and her boyfriend walked into a bar. This week's decent human being is Elizabeth. She's got a fucked up story about sobriety, divorce, and grief. Settle in, my terrible listeners. Today's episode is going to be Positively Terrible. Hey, Scott. Hey, Dan. How are you? Man, I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Elizabeth, how are you? I am great. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we are so excited to have you here. Uh, I, I And first of all, I, I want to, I, I haven't shouted out Dan for the wonderful introductions he gives. Isn't it fun to sit here and watch that? It really is. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he's gotten better since the first couple times when we did it a couple years back. Uh, but Elizabeth. I have to move my hands when I do it a lot. <laughs> well, uh, Elizabeth, um, thanks for, for coming today. Uh, I, I do want to tell the listeners, she uh, emailed us a, a few weeks back, had been listening and just said, hey, guys, like the show, told us a little bit about her life and it was it was pretty interesting. And I was just like, hey, you want to be on the show? And she totally did. So, Elizabeth, what, what brings you here today? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So 2022 was a wild ride. I really got serious and committed to getting sober. And then my husband left me. Thank you. And then my dad got diagnosed with stage four brain cancer. That sounds awful positively terrible even or at least the terrible part and that's a lot for one year and it sounds a lot like my 2021 with just a a few different things but really quickly here thanks for that quick intro i just wanted to say to the listeners remind once again that if you do want to be on this show you can like elizabeth yes like (laughs) elizabeth you can send us an email to podcast at positively terrible.com or you like can, Elizabeth, like Elizabeth, or you can connect with us on Instagram or Facebook at Positively Terrible. And this week, I haven't gotten it up. Dan's probably going to yell at me, but hopefully by the time this airs, but it, the we're, it, the the latest this week, and I'm going to get to get our Patreon up. Um, Ooh, so yeah, it, hopefully, nice. you, you know what we're going to have on there. Dan, Dan has been telling me, and I've had the same experience that a lot of people have been asking one question. Dan, can you guess what that is? I know what it is because I told you what it is. <laughs> I'm getting. I don't think it's fair to make me guess. We're, we're trying to do some banner here. It it is the song, the theme song that ha- I had written a few years back that we're using. It's written by Rob Taxpayer from the band The Taxpayers, and it's awesome. And a lot of people have been trying to figure out what it is. So we're Hold gonna on, put this Elizabeth. on our Patreon. Elizabeth, how do you feel about the theme song? I'm excited about it. I think it's good. Now, what would you pay to have access to the theme song for you to listen to from your own playing device at any time? What would that be worth to you, you know, a super fan? Limit. A super fan. I don't know. Is this monthly or annual subscription? Oh, this is, this is monthly. I think we should do 25 bucks. Oh, 25 bucks, a bargain at 25 bargain, bucks. But Scott's going to do you better. We're going to do how much? We're going to do $3 a month. <gasps> 
three three dollars a month, and you have access. And to that is unlimited, unlimited listens. You can listen to it once and never. You don't have to ever listen at all, except for on the show. Or you can listen to it all day, all night, on repeat. It's an awesome song. People are asking about it. We're going to have other stuff on there. But I don't want to bore you. I don't want Mike sending us a a text saying it's 12 minutes in and we haven't gotten to anything yet. So (laughs) we're going to get right into this. And Elizabeth, 2022. If you had a word to describe 2022, what would it be? chaotic (laughs) (laughs) that that is a good one and i guess i my first question is kind of like i how did it start off was was this like 2022 starting things are going well and then they start going off the rails a little bit um or or were things just not quite right in in your life coming into the year Things were not quite right coming into the year. I had spent um, almost half of 2021 trying to get sober. My drinking had been a problem for quite a while. I was always a binge drinker. I always drank to get drunk. There was no enjoying a cocktail or going to happy hour. Um, And it became a very evident problem. And so I started going to 12-step meetings, but I wasn't committed. I wasn't connecting. I really didn't want to surrender. I didn't want to stop drinking. And so I didn't really do it. Um, And I also got married in 2021. So there was, you know, although I was very happy and in love, there was a lot of stress around wedding planning and making sure that everyone else was happy around that family members, friends. Um, And really during the winter months in early 2021, my drinking escalated and it was at the point where I didn't want to drink, but I literally couldn't stop and I could not see a way out. I was so scared. And there was one night where I had been drinking, coming home drunk was no longer an option with my husband. He just wouldn't tolerate it. And I was too scared. So I was literally downtown Um, And I started running in front of cars because I just wanted to get hit by a car and take me out of all of it. The good thing about that was that led me to an IOP intensive outpatient program here in Chicago. And going to that truly changed the course of my life. It saved my life. It is the people I met there and the skills I learned there are still so much a part of my everyday life. I lean on those people. I use those skills. I said one of those prayers right before this started to center me. Um, and it's just so wonderful. I'm so grateful for that. I, I, but, I can I can hear that in the voice just how important yeah. and special this is to you. The gratitude how? is endless. <laughs> That's awesome. Now, yeah. how did... You get from running in front of cars, drunk off your ass, downtown Chicago, mm-hmm. to in this intensive outpatient therapy. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. IO, IOT? IOP. IOP. What's the P? Uh, intensive outpatient. So there are, you can go oh, to yeah, rehab, yeah, yeah, yeah. which is inpatient. Um, quite frankly, I was too afraid to go to rehab. I thought yeah. I couldn't do it. Um I kind of regret it, not because I don't think my recovery is strong, but I wish I had those experiences. And from what I've heard, rehab is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know who you're talking to. (laughs) I have heard the opposite about rehab, but I mean, you know, there are different experiences, but you just there certainly are. 
go to meetings every day. You're in therapy all the time. You meet like-minded people. You get to walk around these grounds. Like, am I going to relapse so I can go to rehab? Absolutely not. But I do wish I had gone. Sure. So I think Dan's question, uh, like, did the did the cops come or an ambulance come or, or what happened that night? Right. So I was put into an Uber by a coworker, actually, who saw this happening. He sent me home. I got home. My husband was understandably very concerned. He took me to the hospital. I spent the night in the hospital just under a watch. Um, horrible experience. It was freezing cold. I was in a smock and, you know, slippers with stickies on the bottom. Someone had to take me to the bathroom. I couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. But when I got home that next morning. And that's because you were on like a suicide watch, right? Exactly. Yeah. Got it. So Thank you. That was my bottom. When you're 33 and can't go to the bathroom by yourself, things are not going well in life. Sure. <laughs> um, but that morning, you know, I sobered up and was released from the hospital. I was just so desperate and so scared. I knew I needed help and not help you know, at my own discretion, going to 12 step meetings, you know, you have to get yourself there. I needed more than that. So I literally just Googled, you know, IOP programs in Chicago. I called three that day, two of them called me back within two hours, like they moved fast. Oh, wow. um, my therapist was also involved. My husband reached out to my therapist and told her, you know, shit hit the wall, things are not going well. Um, and so she also helped me get there and commit to this and not back out of it. Um, and I think that next Tuesday I started IOP. Wow. That, that is incredibly fast. Now, when you woke up the next morning and were sober, did you remember all of this? No bits and pieces. Yes, but not all of it. I was definitely blacked out for a lot of it. I remember the drive from my apartment to the hospital with my husband, just asking him not to tell work and to also bring me a book as if I was going to sit in the hospital all night and read. I love to read. Um, wouldn't have done much reading that night, but I was like fixated on making sure I had a book with me. Um, I remember the scared feelings, but I don't remember all of my actions. Were you, did you remember that it was your coworker that put you in an Uber? I'm, I'm just kind of wondering about that because we talk so much on this show about like shame and embarrassment. And I'm just wondering if you were grateful in that moment or if you were embarrassed in that moment or or did you just not even remember who it was um in that moment i felt honestly safe that someone had seen me and taken care of me because i wasn't feeling seen or taken care of at home or in other parts of my life i wasn't asking to be seen or to be taken care of very clearly uh, so it wasn't other people's fault but in that moment i truly felt that someone cared and I still work with that person. And, you know, today I don't feel shame, but it was very difficult to look them in the eye two mm-hmm. days later when I returned to work. Um, but they know I am in recovery now. It doesn't come up very often, but I have a soft spot in my heart for that person, <laughs> obviously. I, I was just going to say, I in that moment, I'm sure they were confused and scared, but I can't imagine that they that they had any idea of what an integral role they were going to play in, in kind of changing the direction of your life at the time. Now, a few minutes ago, you said that during, during the wedding planning that you were trying to make everyone else happy. And I'm wondering, I hear that a lot on the show. I don't know if you've noticed that, but a lot of people have said things like, 
you know, I'm spending a lot of time or I'm a people pleaser, I think is what Scooter said a few times last week. And I'm, I'm wondering if this has always been part of your personality a little bit. Uh, I don't know if people pleaser or just trying to help out when you can. Yes, I would say I'm definitely a people pleaser. And it probably starts from childhood. I also grew up in an alcoholic home. My dad was an alcoholic. My parents fought all the time. And I think I learned from a very early age. Well, first of all, I learned that feelings were scary and bad. We did not talk about them in my house. We just pretended that everything was okay. You just smile and you ignore problems. Um, And then I also think I taught myself that if I just behave really well, if I agree with everything, I won't contribute to the chaos or to the problems. And that has carried through into my adult life. I avoid conflict. I used to be very afraid of big feelings. I thought they were bad feelings. And if everyone else around me can be happy, then maybe everything will just be okay. But coming out of that was I wasn't happy. I didn't stand up for myself or set boundaries or even think about what I wanted because I just wanted everyone else to be happy and calm. Did you know that things weren't quite right when you were growing up or did that take getting into adulthood and looking back to, to really realize that? No, I knew it. I mean, I could hear my parents fighting. I would lie to cover up my dad's drinking. He worked from home and I would get home from school and he would be passed out. I would clean up his beer bottles and hide them. So, you know, I was already lying and being sneaky at a young age, but I thought I was doing the right thing. Or, you know, my mom would sleep in my bedroom at night. She hid a safe under my bed and told me not to tell dad about it. So I always knew things were very bad. Well, and then when you were... (laughs) drinking early on did you i i was gonna say how did you feel about drinking like i know in another episode that bill had said that when he was a kid he was like never gonna drink when i grow up is that the feeling you had or was it just kind of something that was so normal that it you knew that it was in your future No, I definitely was a very good, like I said, well-behaved kid, um, very nerdy. I remember D.A.R.E. in eighth grade signing (laughs) this contract, and I took it very seriously. I really thought I would never drink until I was 21 and then just drink glasses of wine at dinner. I truly thought I would never do drugs, but then I went to college, and I was introduced to alcohol, and we were off to the races. You hear this a lot, but just this feeling of, you know, confidence and feeling like I fit in and not really having to feel anything. And pretty much from the moment I started drinking, I was a binge drinker. There was no Mm -hmm. moderating. I wanted to get drunk and I physically couldn't stop. I would have the intention of one to three drinks. And by the time, you know, half a drink was in me, I would not stop until I passed out. Okay. And it sounds like, I think you said that your it wasn't a you didn't have the option of going back home drunk again with your husband on that night. Were you drinking to excess the entire time you were together? Was this something that he didn't realize was as big a problem of it as it was earlier, or maybe was it just that you guys were a little younger and it's more accepted at one point, and then by the time you get married, things are supposed to change, or maybe he thought they would change. Yes, we definitely drank together a lot, our whole relationship, and so did all of our friends. I surrounded myself with people that drank a lot so because that's all I wanted to do. Um, And so I also could feel more normal because everyone else was drinking this way, and so did he. 
I would say for me where we split was the pandemic. I did not like being isolated. I did not like working from home, not seeing my friends. He loved being alone. This was a great opportunity for him to play video games eight to 15 hours a day, all day, every day. And I just felt so alone. And I truly thought the only thing to do every day after work was drink. I would stop working and start drinking and not stop because I really didn't think there was anything else to do with my time. And after a couple of months of that, he was like, you know, you're drinking a lot. You should stop. And instead of talking about why I was drinking and because I was miserable, I hated my life. I wasn't happy. We didn't talk about it. And I just started lying and I started sneaking drinking. I would drink when he wasn't at home. I would hide alcohol in the bathroom, in the laundry room and just hide it. And because I drink so much so fast, it's very difficult to hide that I'm drinking. <laughs> did you did you realize that that was uh, becoming a problem at that point? Yes, but I didn't care. And I think I was able to lie to myself enough to be like, okay, once it's summer, things will get better. Or in a year, things will get better. After we get married, I'll feel better. I kept thinking something would fill this void passively. I didn't realize I was the one that had to actively fill my life with good things. Right. Man, it's amazing. You know, I don't know how many episodes we've done of this now, but every time I hear somebody tell a story like this, I hear more and more things that maybe I would not be, have been able to uh, uh, to say about myself, but hearing you say, you know, I I, I resonate I resonate resonate with resonate? like resonate resonate. Thank you. I resonate with like eighty percent of what you're saying. Like all of that sounds like things that I have thought, felt, or done before. Um, mm-hmm. And just thank thank you for being able to say it so much better than I could. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you, uh, I, I don't, this one is kind of hard for me to articulate, not articulate, but with all of the different topics that we want to get to and need to get to today. So uh, what time of year is it? I can't, I don't know if you said that at the beginning when all of this started happening or when, or the night that you were running around. And got, exploded was yeah. um, in March, early March, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah. And was that the first of the line of events of the year? I guess the divorce happened, had to happen after that. So it's March, you go in to the outpatient treatment and does it take, I mean, is it a pretty immediate thing where you quit drinking or is there a while before you are really committed to it or, or how did that go? Yeah, it took immediately. Now, I will say I drank one other time. My sobriety date is April 16th, not in March, um, because my husband left me and I (laughs) didn't think I could get through. But it took, I just, because for my IOP, it was four hours a night, four days a week, or I'm sorry, three hours a night, four days a week. And just being surrounded by people that got me where I didn't have to explain the why, they just understood because they were going through it too. And we had this feelings wheel and we had to say a feeling every night. And I learned like 40 feelings. I used to think the only thing you could feel was happy, sad, or angry. Um, And I trusted the people and I could finally talk to people about it. So it did take um, pretty quickly. And I was all in. Whereas when I was just going to 12-step meetings earlier, uh, it didn't take. I wasn't all in. But with my IOP, I was all in. Okay. So you start, it's your, your, 
it is resonating with you this time. And uh, you just said that you drank again when your husband left. So how, how much later was that? That sounds like that was in April then? Yeah. So um, he did not like that I was getting better because then he couldn't blame all of his problems on my drinking. Couldn't be like, oh, I had a shitty night last night because you got drunk. Now it was like, oh, I had a shitty night last night. But the weekend of his 30th birthday, I was out to brunch with friends. So I was gone from, we'll call it one to four. I came home from brunch. He moved out. All of his stuff was gone. He just left. He blocked me on his phone. Eventually, he texted me that he wanted a divorce. He had moved from our apartment in Chicago. He was moving to Florida, where he only his parents live there. He doesn't have any friends there. He's from Chicago. And two weeks later, he quit his job. So it was a lot of big life decisions without having discussed it with anyone all at once. I've got a bit of a dumb question. (laughs) Yes. Would you have considered thing? Did did you think things were going that poorly? Did you think things were going well? I mean, what was your assessment on the marriage at that point? Yeah, the marriage was not good. There was a lot of tension. And also one of the biggest points of contention the last month had been, I wasn't giving him enough time or attention because I was an IOP. I would come home from work, do my IOP. That was a big point of tension. Um, Yeah, we weren't happy. Individually, neither one of us were happy. And so together, we were also unhappy. However, we had not discussed divorce, separation, moving. We were in couples therapy. I'm also in individual therapy. Um, So although things were not good, I did not know he was going to ask for a divorce and move to a different state. You got home at four o'clock-ish, you said, and did you immediately know, was was it just that his stuff was gone or was there a note? Was there anything? There was no note. A lot of, I couldn't tell immediately. The thing that set me off is I went into the kitchen and the knife block was gone. I was like, <laughs> that's weird. And then I started looking around and I was like, oh, his clothes are out of the uh, closet. That's what set me off. And I started realizing, and then I called him and I was blocked and that started spiraling. Well, did he bring that knife block to the marriage. Um, no, I did. <laughs> you, you know what? That son of a bitch. Uh, no, priorities. Dan, <laughs> Dan it, this is funny because I was going to talk about the knife block. So we, we know what to focus on here. Right. When, when my ex was leaving, I said, I said to her, I said, oh, shit. You bought the knives, didn't you? <laughs> and she Damn was it. like. She was like, you can keep them. So I got to keep my block and everything, and I'm thrilled about it. I was even thinking about it while I was using them tonight. So I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm going to go drill some holes in my countertop right after this and bolt that thing down to it from the bottom. Yes, so if she's going to leave me, she better take the counter too. Exactly. Yeah, so, so you said that he blocked you, and I'm assuming you you knew nothing right and tried reaching out to him and you're not getting in touch with him so what did you do next i screamed or i called my therapist um i let her know what was going on i was sobbing i think it's probably the first time i'd ever cried in front of her Hmm. um but i was just sobbing my face was red i couldn't breathe she reached out to my husband via email it was just like hey i just talked to elizabeth 
what's going on? Can we all talk tomorrow? And Is so this your ne- couple's therapist or your personal therapist? My personal therapist. But he had reached out to her previously. So she had her his contact information. And I okayed this. I was like, yes, yeah, please yeah, yeah. reach out to him. I need help. Um, and so the next day, the three of us got on a call together. And he was just stoic. He wasn't mad. He wasn't sad. There was just no emotion. But his explanation for not talking to me about this was that he thought I would get mad, which is true. (laughs) I would have gotten very mad and upset, but like, this was just the problem is like, we just avoided things. And that's what I was going to say. That that doesn't come out of nowhere. It sounds like he probably (laughs) avoided a lot of other things during your relationship. Yes. And he's not a bad person. He just didn't have the tools or the words to ask for help. And he was scared. And I think, you know, when we fell in love and he proposed and we got married, that is what he wanted. And I, but I don't think he realized he also still wanted to be, he's younger than me to still be single and live this wild life. And he doesn't know what he wants. Like when he was living in Florida, he was like, well, maybe I want to go hiking or go camping or get tattoos or get a dog or get a car. And I was like, we have a dog. We have a car. I have (laughs) tattoos. What are you talking about? So he just still wants to figure out his life. Yeah. And you know, you say he doesn't have the tools and you're not born with those tools and especially the generation. I'm a little older than the two of you, but we come from a generation that did not have those tools and didn't really teach those tools. It's like the world is evolving really fastly right now. And I'm seeing more and more people who are living intentionally and know that there are resources out for them. They're not always accessible to everyone. And that's another huge problem. Oh yeah. But it's, it's great to see that. I mean, you were working on, on your end and granted some of that sounds like it was only very recent. I mean, uh, well, I shouldn't even say that. When did you start therapy for yourself? Oh, therapy for myself was probably in 2018. So that's been a little bit longer. And then I've been in my IOP and then all the following of that for a little over a year. I haven't drank in 14 months. So that's really good. Awesome. Um, But then I went to a continuing care group, which was group therapy for almost a year. And now I go to 12 step meetings, three to six times a week. So when you started in 2018, were you taking it as seriously as you should? And were you being as honest as you should? I definitely wasn't being honest about my drinking, um, but I didn't go to therapy for my drinking necessarily. I didn't want that to be the thing to fix. But even for my very first session, it came up. It was a problem. And, you know, over the years I worked with my therapist, I talked about, you know, we call it research, like moderating your drinking or only drinking this many days a week or only this many drinks. Um, And I tried that research. It failed. Um, but then I also lied to her about it, especially, you know, 2020 and 2021. Um, I just didn't tell her how bad it was because I was too scared and I didn't want to be told you have to do more. You have to go to IOP. You have to stop drinking, whatever. I just, I didn't want to. Yeah. You weren't ready. And and that's okay. It's, it's one of those things that in your journey, the timing doesn't always match up with the need. Right. And if you're lucky enough and are willing to work hard enough you can get those things to line up and that's when you're going to see some really amazing things happen. So it took a few years, it sounds like, but I would also guess that it was laying a little bit of a foundation as well. And 
that's for me, I think that was, and mine went very rapidly because from the moment I started therapy <laughs> to the moment shit really hit the fan was like six months. And mm-hmm. after a month, I changed my approach to with my therapist and realized, okay, it's going to take some hard work for me. And yeah. again, I, I think that it was timing. I was lucky that I was in a place to do that at that moment. Um, so you had your session, I'll call it. I don't know if, if it's a session. It was your therapist, yeah. <laughs> not the couple's therapist. And he was stoic and didn't really, it sounded like you wanted to avoid things, right? Is what you said, mm-hmm. more or less. And from there, did you guys keep in touch or was that just a one time we're done and next thing you know, it's the divorce and paperwork and lawyer or maybe not a lawyer? Yeah, we kept in touch. I wanted to make it work. Just my divorce fall, or my marriage falling apart was too big and too unimaginable for me. And I loved him. I didn't want to get divorced. I knew things weren't good, but I didn't want to get divorced. So we were talking. It was hard because he was in Florida. He has an Android. I have an iPhone. We couldn't FaceTime. <laughs> but And I was just so frustrated. I didn't want to lose him. But... I kept getting blamed for everything. You know, all he wanted from me was the Peloton and my money. And I was like, well, what about like the dog? What about me? You don't care about these, you know, important, the things I value is not what he valued. Right. Um, and honestly, the breaking point for me was when I was like, this marriage is not going to work. We are moving forward with the divorce. It's when my dad got diagnosed with brain cancer. My husband said that I was too concerned about my dad, that I was overreacting and giving my dad more attention than him. And that conversation was when I was finally able to, with my therapist, communicate to him that I was blocking his number and all further communication would go through our lawyers and I could not work on this anymore. Wow. Well, good for you, I'll say. (laughs) But I want to go back just a little bit before we get into that, because you said, you you said in two different ways, you said, I didn't want a divorce. And then you said, I didn't want to lose him. So was it more about him Uh or was it that you wanted to keep him or was it that you didn't want to be someone who got divorced? It was both. I didn't want to lose the person I thought he was, the person I had fallen in love with. But then also I'm 34 and, you know, I was going through early sobriety. I didn't want to be sober, divorced, old. I know I'm not old, but I was just like, this is just, you know, so unimaginable. I'm going to be this gremlin. I'm not going to have a life. How am I going to tell people? I didn't even tell my mom or my sister right away. My friend actually told my sister because I had called a friend. Just I was so shameful and so secretive about it. Yeah. So before we ask any more questions, Dan, do we kick her off right now for saying she thought she was old at, at 34? I, I mean, I no, I don't. <laughs> and the reason is um, she's been through a lot. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Nice. I get to play that card. Yeah. yeah. It, it no, only, it I, remember, lasts- I remember being like 25, I think, when uh, uh, my my wife and I got engaged and thinking like, Fuck, man! I better like I better get a ring now because we're getting old, aging out. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, okay, so uh, you said all the communication from then on out would go through your lawyer, and that 
I, I just want to point out that I, I really like the boundary setting. Is that how did you feel about that though? Was that an easy decision? Okay, no, it was not easy. So weeks before I actually did it, I had written out the text with my therapist, how to say it, to say it respectfully, but very clearly. And I just didn't send it for a couple of weeks. It was too final. I've never blocked someone's number. That's just not what I do. Blocking my husband. It was just too big and too yeah. scary and final. So it took a long time, you know, a couple of weeks for me to work up to it to finally send that text. And once I did, honestly, I felt free. I was like, this is just not my life anymore. I'm actually doing the hard thing to move on. And it felt really good can and I, can, scary. Can I admit something to you guys right now? Yes. I have not blocked my ex's number and she just moved the last of her stuff out this past weekend. Okay. And it's so that's 22 months uh, after I kicked her out. Mm-hmm. That's because Scott's trying to save as much money on lawyer fees as he possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are divorced. We are. Ev- that was it. That was the very last connection that we have. And mm-hmm. it's a weird feeling. It's now it's final. Like, is is it yeah. actually over? Will you ever see her again? There's yeah. And I have to say heart. that when, when she left and based off of the way she manipulated me and played games, she said, see you later. And I'm pretty sure there was intent there to have me react or it, I mean, either say, no, no, you won't. Or and she could play a victim, or that it would hurt one or the other. Either one would have been good for her because that's how she controlled me in the past. And it's a pretty weird feeling to know that I never have to intentionally communicate with her again. Um, so big milestone in my life this past week. Um, but anyway, I'd like to think that all further communication needs to go through the podcast with her. <laughs> yes, me specifically. Let me deal with this lady. <laughs> I, I have a lot of people who have offered to do any communication I need uh, with her. So I, I love that. But we'll back up again. And I don't mm-hmm. want to gloss over the major life event that led to you blocking him. Um, your dad was diagnosed with cancer. Yes. And can you tell me a little bit how that went? Yeah. So I live in Chicago. My dad lives in Michigan now. He's had lived in Michigan for maybe 10 years. That's where he's from. So he moved back there. Um, And we had a complicated relationship. You know, Mm -hmm. I love him because he's my dad and I look like him. I act like him. I laugh at my own jokes the way he does. (laughs) But it was a complicated relationship. We talked every Sunday, just very high level life updates. I would never come to him with a serious problem or, you know, I wouldn't tell him anything other than that life is great. That's the relationship we had. But he called me on a Wednesday afternoon, which I had years ago asked him to stop calling me during the workday because I'm at work. And he had uh, respected that boundary. So it was very weird that he was calling me in the afternoon. um, And I just happened to not be in a meeting. So I answered, I stepped into a conference room. And he was calling me because he was in the hospital, he had been falling down for a couple months, he's afraid of doctors, he thinks that, you know, if you go to the doctor, they're going to tell you something's wrong, and you'll never Mm -hmm. leave and die. That did happen. (laughs) But he was calling, he'd been falling down, his girlfriend, you know, 
saw that this problem was escalating, took him to the emergency room. They did an MRI and he had a huge tumor in his brain and they needed to do brain surgery the next day. So he called me on a Wednesday. Surgery was, I was actually Friday. I drove the next day. Um, and he was afraid that he was not going to wake up from this surgery. He really thought he was going to die. Um, he couldn't tell me what hospital he was at. He couldn't give me his girlfriend's phone number. He was just too scared and too out of it. So I said, okay, I love you. Uh, I'm coming to Michigan tomorrow. I'll call you back later. And I went back to my desk and I asked a coworker, my best friend at work, uh, to come into a conference room with me. And I just started sobbing. I could barely communicate it. I was just, I wasn't expecting it. I was scared. Um, whatever. So I went home. I drove to Michigan the next day. His surgery lasted maybe five and a half hours. Um, he did come out of it, but they did confirm it was a glioblastoma, which is stage four brain cancer. And this type of cancer, typically the prognosis is 12 to 18 months. Um, but that's really all I knew. And that day I actually had a therapy session and it was like two minutes after the surgeon came out and told us the news. So I was sitting on a hospital bathroom floor sobbing to my therapist again. So just thank God for therapists. If you don't have a therapist, <laughs> listeners, get one. <laughs> well, we say get a fucking therapist. That's what our shirts say. Yes. <laughs> All right. So did you have any inkling beforehand? Was did had he shared anything or had you seen anything that would lead you to believe something was wrong? No, not at all. So the last time I had seen my dad was about a year before at my wedding and then three weeks later at my sister's wedding. And he was so happy. Us getting married and seeing us happy was just like the biggest, greatest joy of his life. And he moved a little stiffly. He was 72, 73. He wasn't agile, but mentally he was all there. And, you know, he was able to drive from Michigan to Chicago and then Michigan to Cape Cod for these weddings. And he was happy. And again, because he never, ever went to the doctor, no one would have known that anything was wrong. Uh, but the doctors also said that this tumor probably had only been growing for about two months. So oh, wow. the last time I had seen him in person, he didn't have any cancer. Um, so no, there was no inkling. And, you know, he was pretty active. He had a great social life in Michigan. He did trivia two times a week. He's on all these trivia leagues. He volunteered for the parks. Um I don't know what else he did. He was very active and busy and had great friends. So, no, I did not know. This blindsided me. Sure. And you said that your relationship was kind of complicated. Did that make this harder to process, do you think? I think so, because it was the first time probably ever in my life I have seen him vulnerable. And over the months between his diagnosis and when he passed away, the conversations we had and the emotions he expressed and he had um, ostracized himself from his family. He let his siblings back into his life and was communicating with them and meeting with them. So just seeing him in this vulnerable emotional state was very new to me, but I was very ready to get into it and lean into it. But I also just felt very help or hopeless, helpless, I wanted to fix it and I literally couldn't fix it and I didn't know what to do. Um, so yeah, it was really scary. And did you just return back to Chicago after the surgery or did you have some time to spend with him? Or 
Um, I stayed for a couple days, but I came back to Chicago. He was staying in the hospital mm -hmm. and he was in the hospital from, we'll call it July through October. He didn't leave the hospital. And so I would go and visit him. My sister would visit him. Um, and he was slowly just because of his medications and because his, you know, his brain was missing pretty much, um, was a little out of touch or just had no sense of timelines. He was getting very confused. So it was hard to see him. It really started to feel like we had already lost our dad, even though he was physically here. And then, um, you know, he was taking chemo, but the doctors recommended that he go to hospice care just so he could be comfortable and you know, end his life that way. Um, his girlfriend was very against that. And she also said that my dad was against that. He wanted to keep taking medicine, uh, but the hospital could not keep him there. They didn't, they couldn't keep treating him in his state. So he moved out of the hospital into his girlfriend's house, which I am so grateful for her. She is an angel for doing what I could not do, which was care for him mm -hmm. 24 hours a day for the last two or three months of his life. So he was living with her. Um, and, you know, we would go and visit him at her house. And he just, I remember the second to last time we saw him, I was with my sister and she hadn't seen him as recently as I had. And she's like, oh yeah, he looks like a corpse. And I didn't really realize that. I think I still like not that I wasn't accepting that he was dying, but to me, he still looked like dad. But hearing her say, like, he looks dead really made me realize, like, okay, this is coming. Did you, I don't know how to ask, I, was there a feeling of connecting at all while he was sick? Or was it just hard because of the nature of his illness? No, there was definitely a connection and I think a level of love we had never been able to express with each other. I remember the day we moved him from the hospital to his girlfriend's house, she had to run out to get supplies. Um, and my dad needed to go to the bathroom and he needed his brief changed and there was no one else there to do it. And I had to, in like two seconds, be like, do I change my dad's brief or do I just let him go to the bathroom? I was like, you, ha you have to do this. And that was really hard for me, but it was the right thing to do. And I talked to my therapist about it and she's like, you have to think of it as your parents took care of you when you were an infant and did all of this for you. Now it's your time to take care of him in this way. Um, and so, yeah, it just brought us closer. It made me feel just this like love and care that I had never, I don't think experienced with anyone before. Do you think that that made it harder or easier the thinking about taking care? I mean, that reversal mm -hmm. of roles has got to be very jarring. I would think it was because, because it happened so fast. It was jarring, but it also felt very comfortable. Like I do not have kids. I would love kids one day if I have the opportunity I think I do have so much compassion and love to give. And I think that moment demonstrates that, that deep down, you know, I've done some bad things and made bad decisions, but deep down, I'm a decent fucking human. <laughs> <laughs> you should get that tattooed on you. I'm, I, I, I'm just I saying. You're, you're paying for them for I, the first five people. Or yes, <laughs> I am. Well, it's, it's actually seven, I guess, because if you include oh, yeah. me and scooter but no dan says is putting up the fingers um well i didn't i didn't count you scott you're right that's seven <laughs> all right um so i i guess what i can't help but notice is that the timing 
of all of this, as hard as that had to have been at once, it was probably a really good thing that this came after you had began uh, your sobriety. Oh my gosh, just a godsend because I was in group therapy at the time. So twice a week, every week I was going to group therapy. So I could talk about this. If I hadn't been in group therapy. Twice a week for every week, she monopolized 13 <laughs> yeah. people's time. I have bigger problems and nobody else got a damn thing out of that well, session. And, and nobody else could say anything, right? It's like, okay, well, yeah, so Elizabeth, Elizabeth gets to talk tonight. <laughs> I actually remember the week I came home from Michigan after his surgery, I had missed a group therapy and I was like, sorry guys, I wasn't here on Thursday. I went to Michigan. My dad actually, you know, has brain cancer. And the guy sitting next to me was like, not to one up you, Elizabeth, but my dad died last week. <laughs> I was like, uh, all right, you win. Uh, I, I, before we go any further, I'm going to thank you so much for being able to be here and laugh a little bit. It's you so therapeutic. <laughs> it's, it's a, if, you don't, if you don't laugh, I mean, I, I would say you cry, but crying is good too. But if you hold it. And I do it, cry. I I'm do. Sure, yeah. But... Oh God. I'm, I'm with you. I understand that. And I'm just so glad though, that, that we can do this here tonight. Um, especially because it's, it's good. Well, we were talking earlier before that it's good for the listeners too. You get a little excited to hear about the, the fucked up stories that other people go through, but it's because we can relate to them. It's because we're coming through the other side. And I, I mean, this was just, this was a year ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's incredible wow. to see just, you know, I, the, the smile on your face, the presence you have, you look like you're in such a great place right now. I really am. I'm just, honestly, I can't believe how good my life is. And I don't want to jinx it. And I know in early sobriety, they talk about this pink bubble or this pink cloud. I'm still in it. Not all day, every day. I get pissed off. People are annoying. I cry. But I am just so happy all the time. I have everything I need, almost everything I want. I'm on a podcast with you guys tonight. Like I have a full social life and I find humor in a lot of things and I get to laugh with so many people that I love so often. I'm going to ask you a question that is, I'm asking it because of where I am right now and how I'm suddenly realizing that I didn't know what happiness was until recently. And is, is that kind of a feeling that you're getting? Absolutely. Just this like high on life, elevated excitement, or, you know, I wake up in the morning, I have my little routine, and I'm excited to start the day. I have things to look forward to. I don't have to deal with what I did last night and regret it. And, you know, I'm just, I am, I'm excited and I'm trying new things and I'm living a life that I never thought I could do because other people were holding me back. And I was one of those people. Um, but yeah, life is just so full because I can do awesome things. <laughs> But this time, I'm going to put you you on the spot uh, and and the answer can't be be on this podcast. Uh, You just said you can do new things. What 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 new thing have you tried out that you've enjoyed since uh, in the last year? Travel. So I love to travel. My ex-husband did not like it. On Wednesday, I'm going to Thailand for 11 days with a tour group. I don't know anyone on the tour and I am going to explore a whole new country. I've never been anywhere in Asia. That's amazing. Have you been out of the U.S.? Yes, I've been to Europe. I've been to Mexico. Um, I don't know if this counts, but a couple weeks ago, I was supposed to go skydiving, which is something I've never done. It was raining that day, so the skydiving place canceled. Not my fault. But that was something I was with. And it was a second date. So I was really like, we're going all in. You can see me go through all of my emotions. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So why Thailand? 
Um, like I said, I've been to Europe many times, which I'm very lucky, but I want something so new. I want to hear new languages and new sounds and try new food and just go to a part of the world I've never been to. I've always wanted to. And, you know, it was hard to find friends that had the same time off, the amount of mm -hmm. time off, the money, the interest. And so I'm just making it happen on my own because why not? I can and I want to. Yeah, that's amazing. I've, I've, I've got five trips scheduled for this year, all short ones, mm -hmm. but I haven't traveled at all since the pandemic started until this year. So, and, and really before then, I, I mean, it's, it sounds like we have a lot that we can relate with each other. I always said that if I wrote a biography, it would be waiting for ex-wife's name uh, because yeah. we didn't go places. There were restaurants we didn't try. There were things It was just kind of sitting around and I thought at times even that I was still happy. And to get to this point where I realize now that happiness can be your life or not all of your life, but I used mm -hmm. to think of happiness as an emotion you felt after something good happened. Like, okay, the Cubs won today. I'm happy. And it would be a five minutes of being happy. Or if something actually that mattered happened, it might be the rest of the night that I was mm -hmm. happy, but suddenly I've got this feeling that I'm looking forward to the next day. And when I wake up, I'm looking forward to the same to, to the day. And the podcast has been a lot of that. It's, it's been got such it. a really cool and fulfilling thing. And it's something that over the years, especially when I was in a bad marriage and didn't even realize that it was a bad marriage and it was exhausting me. I just didn't do the things that I could do that would have made me happy. And, you know, it sounds to me like, you know, you have different reasons, but when you're out drinking a lot and prioritizing that you're, you're, you're doing the same thing. I was waiting and maybe you were avoiding a, a little bit. I was avoiding, I was never present when I was out drinking, you know, I wasn't focusing on my friends. I was focusing on where I could get the next drink, how much everyone else was drinking. Why am I drinking more than them? How can I try and whatever the opposite of keep up is keep down with them? <laughs> it was, that was my obsession was mm -hmm. the drinking instead of the activity. And now I still, I thought I would lose all my friends. I have very good friends. I didn't lose them. I still hang out with them, but I'm so present and in the moment and I still have fun. Yeah. I go home a little bit earlier than everyone else, but mm -hmm. who cares? I have a great night. And yeah. you get a great sleep after that, too. I do, and I love it. <laughs> Isn't that and the best? It is, and you wake up refreshed. And what right. I love is my mornings waking up before everyone else and getting something <laughs> done. <laughs> Feels really good. That, yeah. That's amazing. And I do not do that, um, but I... <laughs> I have been a long time proponent of waking up with no hangovers and yes. you uh, probably hadn't gotten to the point of your life that I got to. And I was never a big drinker. Uh, well, I shouldn't say never. There have been times in my life where it's gone up and where it's gone down. But there, uh, once I hit about 35, my hangovers started to occasionally being two day hangovers. The oh, first the day, two day hangovers. Oh, you got them. You had them already. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. And then it's like, oh, I feel so bad. I'll just have a drink to get rid of the hangover, and then the night just starts again. <laughs> All right. Well, this is awesome, and I think that we've gone through the story. I, I'm so happy that you reached out to us, Elizabeth. This was really great. Um, there was a lot to get through, and I think that uh, we touched on pretty much everything. Dan, did you have any outstanding questions that I didn't get to? 
No. See, that that <laughs> is the things. that is the closest thing to a compliment Dan will ever give me. Is he, he basically acknowledged I got the right questions out. So you did uh, wonderful, <laughs> Elizabeth. I I just want you as the first listener who's emailed us and ended up on the show. Would Ooh. you recommend it for your friends? Absolutely. Now be honest. No, this is great. I was so nervous before this, and now I mean, I'm sure I rambled. Um, but yeah, I had a no, great time. not nearly as much thrilling. as Scott. You yeah. were awesome. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about me here when this is your interview, so I'm rambling more than you are already. But and I, I said your friends. Okay, I, I should have. I said, would you recommend it to all of our terrible listeners who have a story, not just your friends? Yes. If terrible listeners, if you are comfortable sharing your story, I would recommend this space as a fun, safe space to do it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) And you have been a very fun interview. Uh, I love the just seeing again from the start, this energy that's coming off of you. You can't fake that. And I'm so happy that you've been able to uh, get through everything and especially it's, it's been a year and it's, 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 that's rough. That was a rough 2022 and I get it. And to see you here and smiling and laughing with us. Um, I'm so happy you were here. Thank and, uh, you. I'm so happy to share with you guys. Yeah. So yeah, you were fantastic. So when we do the, uh, terrible, uh, what's the show called? Positively terrible live. Uh, I hope that you're there. I hope that you'll share your story live. <laughs> I will be there. You'll hear me cheering and laughing. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. And if you ever get that tattoo, I will pay for it. But thank you again. I appreciate you. It is such an honor and humbling and I'm grateful and all of those other words that we can use to say that we loved having you here today. And as always, this has been absolutely, positively terrible. I met you back at time to confess I confess I was nervous and stressed Because I thought you were the best I was right And that night we got into a water fight That I won, I shot you in the face It was fate, I offered you a spring You declined, I said, keep it you might Decide to change your mind, you did
was nervous and stressed because I thought you were the best I was right.